Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Healing the Nations podcast, your podcast on religious liberty and end time events. And I have a special returning guest that has returned to us here today, Dr. Norman McNulty. Norman, thank you so much for coming back to our podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, Norman, what have you been doing lately in the shelter-in-place order that's nationwide right now? Yeah, I've, instead of traveling around and preaching, I've been preaching a lot on Zoom. I've spoken to churches in North Carolina, and I spoke for the Heartland Convocation in Virginia, and I also spoke to a, a, a youth conference over in the country of India, and so Zoom has made that possible. It is often that, you know, we think that the restriction of travel would prevent us from preaching the end-time gospel message, but now we've gone pretty global, haven't we? Yeah, it's amazing. Now, there's a lot of people that are panicking right now within the church. I mean, a lot of YouTube videos are being published that we are in the little time of trouble or we're in the time of trouble and that COVID-19 is leading to this nefarious plot to institute the Sunday Law. How do you see in your observation, your studies, where we are in the end-time timeline? Yeah, that's a great question. And obviously, a lot of people are wondering where we are prophetically. Well, clearly, the COVID-19 pandemic is a sign of the coming of Jesus. I would certainly see it as fitting as a pestilence that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. But as far as it being the little time of trouble, you know, Ellen White makes it pretty clear, for example, in Testimonies, Volume 5, pages 464, 465, that, that it's at the Sunday Law that that will be the, the final chance to flee the cities. Now, it's good if you've already left, but the little time of trouble, which is actually a term that Ellen White doesn't use, it's a it's a heading that's placed in her book, Last Day Events, because there it is a time of trouble. Once the Sunday law is passed, there will be persecution of God's people, um, but the death decree comes later in the process of the Sunday law. So the, the, the pandemic that we're in right now is not the so-called early time of trouble. It's not the abomination of desolation. It's not the siege of Jerusalem, as I've seen some people call it. Ellen White very clearly says as the siege of Jerusalem by the Roman armies was the signal for flight to the Judean Christians, so the assumption of power on the part of our nation and in the decree enforcing the papal Sabbath will be a warning to us. It will then be time to leave the large cities preparatory to leaving the smaller ones for retired homes and secluded places among the mountains. So this is not the abomination of desolation. This is not the siege of Jerusalem. This is not the beginning of the early time of trouble or the little time of trouble. Having said that, what we see with this pandemic is how quickly the world can change. And my personal belief is that if for some reason this pandemic doesn't go away, like if we continue to stay in a lockdown, and if it were to lead to people becoming desperate due to an economic collapse, people not being able to get food in grocery stores, then you could potentially see an escalation to where people would start calling for a Sunday law. But I don't see that yet. So we don't want to be um, overly 
reading into what's happening. Um, but we do need to be aware of, of how it all fits into the big picture of prophecy. In my understanding of Bible prophecy, there is a great time of trouble in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, about That's a right. time of trouble that never was. My understanding of that is the seven last plagues. Mm -hmm. And then there is a great tribulation in Matthew 24 that's a persecution to God's people. Is that how we should view it? Yeah, good question. You know, Matthew 24 is, you know, of course, used by Jesus to, to describe the signs of his coming and of the end of the world. And the period of tribulation that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 24, you could probably make an application to what happens just before he returns. But personally, I've understood that to represent the 1260-year persecution, that um, the days were shortened or otherwise no flesh would have been saved. Um, and then um, and then a few verses, that's in verse 21. Um, and, and earlier where that tribulation is meant, well, yeah, verse 21 specifically. And then a few verses later, you have the mentioning of the, the dark day and the falling of the stars, which we understand to be 1780, 1833. So I don't have a major issue with people who might see Matthew 24, 21 is specifically referring to what happens just before Jesus comes back. I've seen that primarily applying to the tribulation of the 1260 years. And then Daniel 12, 1, the great time of trouble is referring to Jacob's time of trouble just before Jesus comes back. So the way I've described those two periods of tribulation is that one is the greatest tribulation because of its duration that's the 1260 year period. And then the other is the greatest tribulation because of its intensity. That's Jacob's time of trouble. But there certainly are applications that you can make for Matthew 24, um, especially like that with respect to what happens just before Jesus returns. Um, but that's how I see that passage. But clearly with what you were mentioning with Daniel 12, 1, there's this great time of trouble known as Jacob's time of trouble, which is kicked off with a death decree, which causes God's people to go through this intense agony, struggle, personal examining of heart while facing a death decree. And during that time as well, the seven last plagues are being poured out. So that's going to be a, a great time of trouble uh, for sure. And that will happen at the end of the whole Sunday law crisis with the death decree that's associated with the Sunday law. But there's stages to the Sunday law that get us to that point. So in your observation, if things escalate and that there's food shortages and there's riots in the cities, that people would want a Sunday law. So what would be the motive behind the people calling for a Sunday law? Would it be a religious revival call for religious reformation or would it be just secular motivations? Yeah, good question. You know, Ellen White actually addresses this and the clearest quote that she has is from review and Herald September 17, 1901. Ellen White says that, um, 
I'll, I'll read the quote to you. So this is Review and Herald, September 17, 1901, paragraph 9. When the angel of mercy folds her wings and departs, Satan will do the evil deeds he has long wished to do. Storm and tempest, war and bloodshed, in these things he delights, and thus he gathers in his harvest. And so completely will men be deceived by him that they will declare that these calamities are the result of the desecration of the first day of the week. And she goes on to say, from the pulpits of the popular churches will be heard the statement that the world is being punished because Sunday is not honored as it should be, and it will require no great stretch of imagination for men to believe this. They are guided by the enemy, and therefore they reach conclusions which are entirely false. So what I see is that if this current crisis were to escalate to a, a very significant level where like you were mentioning as i said earlier there's food shortages people start rioting and people see that the the entire country and the world are starting to fall apart then the leading ministers in the popular churches are going to start saying that these calamities are the result of the desecration of sunday and they'll call for a sunday law and if look i mean if things get bad enough people will accept anything if they see it as as a solution to the problem and so i'm not saying that that will happen with this pandemic it, it you know very well may not and i don't want to make a prediction that it's going to happen i'm just saying that that the pandemic created a, an environment here in America and around the world, that if it were to get worse and not better, and if things were to completely fall apart, it could create conditions that could lead to a Sunday law. That's all I'm saying. But if it gets better, if things get better, if, if the curve flattens and comes back down and things start opening up again, then you know it's less likely that a, a Sunday law would be called for. Now, there's some within our church, actually a loud segment of our church that believe that the climate change movement, the Green New Deal, and that secular humanism and communism, rather than evangelical Christians, are going to usher in the Sunday law. How do you respond to that? Yeah, you know, I've seen that argument. Um, I don't see that sentiment being supported by inspiration whether it's in the bible or the spirit of prophecy because if you go with the bible it's the false prophet of apostate protestantism which is the second beast of revelation 13 which will form an image to the first beast of, of the roman catholic church state power and then you know what i just read here in this statement from september 17 1901 of the review and herald you see that it's coming from the pulpits of the popular churches. Having said that, I would say that the climate change movement does appeal to secularists and atheists and people of that line of thinking. And, you know, I've sometimes wondered how are atheists going to fall into line, how are secularists going to fall into line with a Sunday movement? And... I could see that being kind of an accessory, so to speak. It's, but I don't see it as the leading edge of um, bringing a Sunday law. In fact, I saw someone 
dialoguing recently on social media, trying to make the claim that, you know, the secular climate change movement would be the leading force for a Sunday law. And yeah, I don't see that in inspiration. I just see that it could be used by the papacy or the other powers that be to, to bring secularists along if the religious right starts to push for a Sunday law, because if the religious right starts to push for a Sunday law, like the Catholic church is going to be all on board with that. Um, but that's going to be what, what would be the leading edge. That's what the Bible and the spirit of prophecy clearly teach that it's going to be the religious right of this nation that, that take the leading edge. So that's how I see that. And then, you know, the whole, climate change movement would be sort of an accessory if it is at all it may not be but that's the only way i could see it being part of a sunday law movement so why is it now in our current climate that there's a loud segment of our church that does not think that the religious right or evangelical christianity is a threat more the threat comes from secular humanists and uh, communists and that inkling. Mm-hmm. Why has that happened? This is like a new phenomena that I've observed since 2016. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, as someone who has always been very um, wary and concerned from a prophetic standpoint about the religious right, um, I guess in the up until the last few years, I, I hadn't really considered the secular left as being an issue per se in end time events. And I've, I have kind of wondered, for example, when Ellen White talks about how labor unions will play a part in end time prophecy and closing events, I don't totally have an answer for how that will completely play out and the negative role that labor unions will will take. And, you know, for example, Seventh-day Adventists discourage their members from joining labor unions or unions um, for that reason based on the council from spirit of prophecy but what i would say is like if you look for example at what happened to our friend dr eric walsh um, he was persecuted from the secular left not from the religious right because of his views on homosexuality and so i think what's probably happened is that there are you know conservative Seventh-day Adventists who see how the secular left have taken steps to take away civil liberty and freedom of speech, and how, um, for example, Dr. Walsh's um, religious liberty, his ability to have free exercise of a religion was impinged upon because what he said in his sermons in church was then used as a reason to um, get rid of him in a job that was a publicly held position as, as a public health officer. So, you know, and people see that and then they see the whole gay marriage ruling where they feel like their um, religious liberties could potentially be impinged upon if, if secular world viewpoints were then imposed onto their religious beliefs. For example, if religious schools, colleges, um, we're told that they could potentially lose nonprofit status if they don't 
um, accept certain lifestyles into their institutions. People have seen that, and it's come from the secular left. And and I've been I, honestly, I I was taken aback and surprised by those movements. But having said that, I do feel that. Um, a lot of people have taken their eye off the ball, so to speak, because we clearly see prophetically that it's going to be the religious right that will ultimately agitate for Sunday legislation, which will ultimately destroy our religious and civil liberties altogether. What I would say is this, and that is that if you look at when Christ was crucified, it was the religious left and the religious right, the, the Sadducees being the left and the Pharisees being the right, who united to uh, crucify Christ and put him to death. And it very well could be that the secular left will come together with a religious right over a Sunday law for different reasons. Now, again, the secular left is not going to agitate for the Sunday law. It's going to be the religious right, but the secular left could be brought on board with it, especially as you see miracles, supernatural miracles that start to take place, like in Revelation 13, where fire comes down from heaven on the earth and the side of men. And so, you know, there may be different motivations for certain people going along with a Sunday law. Some receive the mark of the beast on their forehead, some on their hand. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess to kind of get back to the final point, I think that it's dangerous to align ourselves politically with a religious right, even if it seems that they may be a safer haven for certain religious liberties. For example, they're going to protect us from, or at least some elements of the religious right will protect us from having homosexuality enforced upon our personal beliefs, for example. Um, but, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, they're not going to be there to support us. One other thing I would mention is that I have seen the secular left using methods and perspectives that basically suggest that if you don't agree with how we see things, then we'll destroy all liberties that you have. And um, I feel like they've advanced that further than even the religious right has so far. Um, however, I, if you look at Daniel 11, it, I think the religious right in, in connection with the papacy will be more than happy to utilize these methods of intolerance that the secular left has been introducing into to the modern scene. And so they'll just take it and, and take it even further. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely not a safe place to be to be um, pitching your tent with a religious right. So in other words, like Jesus, when he was in front of Pilate and Pilate asked him that if he's the king of the Jews, that's a political question. And he remained yeah. silent, and he never sided with the Pharisees or the Sadducees right. or the Zealots. So as some right. of the Adventists, we should just have our own course. Is that correct? That's right. I mean, you know, and, and you know, I'm someone who obviously pays attention to what's happening in the political arena because we do need to know what's happening because, I mean, America is the second beast of Revelation 13, and we're going to be the nation that 
forms the image to the beast, of course, us personally, hopefully, as Seventh-day Adventists, but as a nation, our nation is going to form the image to the beast. Um, so we need to know what's happening. But I mean, you know, I see all of this banter on social media and I feel like, you know, people who are taking a hard stance for either side are potentially setting themselves up for, um, you know, being in the wrong camp at the end of the day. I just think that the closer we come to the, the second coming, the the clearer we see the true colors of both political camps. And I, I think I said this when I was on the, the podcast before. I mean, I feel like I'm a man without a party. I'm a man without, you know, a political affiliation because I don't trust either camp anymore. I don't trust either side to to truly protect my civil liberties or religious liberty. I, I feel like the left would would come after me with all that they have if if they, you know, understood my personal religious views on certain topics that are hot button topics in, in society right now. Um, you know, the way they went after Eric Walsh, they would come after me, so I don't trust them, but then I know that the religious right is, is going to agitate for a law that violates the law of God, the Sunday law. So I don't, I don't trust anybody. Now, uh, going back to the climate change movement and the secular yeah. humanists, yeah. you said that that might be an accessory. Could that be an overture to the threefold union of spiritualism, apostate Protestantism, and the papacy, like a preview or planting of the seeds for that alignment? Yeah, I could see that, because I, I think the secular left, they're not going to go for a Sunday law based on personal um, theological conviction that, oh, wow, um, we need to follow Christ and give our lives to him, but they can easily be brought in through the aspect of spiritualism, and um, they'll see supernatural manifestations, which are satanic, and because secularists are actually followers of Satan, let's just be frank here, Revelation 11 shows this beast coming up out of the abyss, which the abyss represents a satanic power, and that beast in Revelation 11 is atheism, which gives rise to the to the French Revolution, which eventually gives rise to communism and the Russian Revolution and all of that, and the the secularism that we have in the world today. That's a satanic power, and so Satan will work through spiritualism to reach secularists, and he'll use apostate theology um, to reach people who think they're following Christ when they aren't. Now, I remember you mentioning in a sermon or a presentation that one of the reasons why the religious right will seek civil power to institute their agenda is because of their theology in regards to the law of God. Can you yeah. uh, expound more on that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. You know, so it's interesting. If you look at Scripture, the power of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And it's so powerful that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed in the lives of the just who live by faith. So true justification by faith produces 
the righteousness of God revealed in the lives of those who have faith. That's the power of the gospel. But the gospel of Babylon doesn't teach that. The gospel of Babylon says we are weak, sinful human beings who are so broken by sin that the best our Savior can do for us is forgive us, give us a little bit of, a, of an improved life. It may be a pretty good improvement in life, but we are, we are so broken by sin, we will continue to live in sin till the end of all things. So the righteousness of Christ will simply cover you and declare you to be righteous, but it won't fully transform you so that the righteousness of God would be revealed in your lives. And the Sunday law is actually part of that whole thing, because basically the religious world says God's law can't be kept fully because we're going to continue to sin till Jesus comes. And so what difference does it make, um, you know, if we have Sunday rather than Saturday? And so what ends up happening is when the world completely collapses and look, crisis is revealed in a character and people are going to see, you know, how bad things are and Christians are going to be falling apart. And so the Christian church will come to the civil government and say, in essence, now they're not saying this explicitly, but it's implicit. The church will come to the government and say, our gospel doesn't work. Look at how bad society is. We need you to help us out by enforcing a law that will force people to come back to God because the teaching in our church hasn't been able to produce that change. Now, they're not going to say that explicitly, but that is what is implicitly said by a Sunday law. A Sunday law is implicitly saying our gospel doesn't work, so we need the civil government to enforce a law that will change people into following God and will get them into church. Whereas the Seventh-day Adventist gospel is a gospel that says the gospel of Jesus Christ is so powerful that we don't need the civil arm to enforce religion because God is so powerful. His gospel will transform us completely and so that we will be like Jesus and that the righteousness of God will be revealed in our lives. And that's why the Sabbath is the seal of God, because Ellen White says in order for men to keep the Sabbath holy, they must themselves be holy. So Seventh-day Adventists, the 144,000 who received the seal of God, they are a demonstration that the power of the gospel has worked, that they have been transformed into the righteousness of Christ, and the Sabbath is a sign or a seal that they have been sanctified. Those who receive the mark of the beast don't believe that they can gain victory over sin, and so they resort to a secular law that enforces religious worship because the power of the gospel couldn't change them because they didn't believe they could be changed. So it's a rather remarkable illustration of the difference between sabbath believers and sunday believers so piggybacking on that thought we have a lot of evangelicals and even some of the avenues that agree with evangelicals in regards to issues like abortion and yeah. like uh evangelicals are very active in lobbying mm -hmm. government but sharing that concept will you share with me then it would be more effective for us as Seventh Adventists, rather than being involved in these political schemes, preach the everlasting gospel of victory over sin. Is that correct? Yeah, clearly the most effective method for effecting change is to preach the true gospel 
And, you know, sometimes I hear people, you know, talk about the gospel, even in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and it's not a complete gospel. So it has to be the complete gospel, and I know you and I agree on that very clearly. Um, you know, as far as, like, um, being involved in voting on moral issues, Ellen White does give counsel, for example. She encouraged Seventh-day Adventists to vote against alcohol for example, because of the deleterious effects it would have on society. So if there are issues on a ballot, um, we as Seventh-day Adventists should vote. I, I, I can think of an example for there, there is a, a self-supporting academy somewhere in the, the southern part of the United States. And a few years ago, their county was going to open up alcohol into the restaurants and stores for the first time. And the 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 people in that school use it as an opportunity to go into the neighborhoods to talk to people about you know the importance of of a healthy lifestyle and abstaining from alcohol as far as possible now as far as i understand that they lost the vote and, and alcohol was opened up but you know ellen white does give some counsel that yeah you, if there are moral issues that we should have a voice and we should vote on them. But what I would say is that we should connect those issues to the power of the everlasting gospel and of the three angels' messages. I think one of the problems with the evangelicals, for example, on the issue of abortion is that they, in my opinion, have the right stance on abortion. I, I'm definitely pro-life. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church actually at the annual council this last year it gave a very clear biblical position on abortion. The Biblical Research Institute gave a much clearer biblical exposition about abortion compared to the prior statement. And they showed very clearly various Bible passages that compared unborn life in the womb to that of human life outside of the womb. So really, as Seventh-day Adventists, we shouldn't be confused about whether or not the baby in the womb is, is, is a human life. But the issue with the evangelicals is they make it like an end-all, be-all issue, and it's disconnected from the, the true everlasting gospel. So, for example, evangelicals will say, you know, the law was done away with at the cross. That's why we don't worship on Sabbath anymore, and we can change the day of worship. But then they say, but we shouldn't murder babies in, in the mother's womb. And, the, and so there's a disconnect in their theology, whereas as Seventh-day Adventists, we have a much clearer theology that, that connects to the entire law of God and to the power of the gospel. And, you know, we shouldn't be known for one political issue where, you know, Seventh-day Adventists agitate one particular thing. But that just because evangelicals are probably mistaken for how they may agitate the abortion issue, if there is a principle involved that we can support, um, we should support that as Seventh-day Adventists. Um, that, that's my personal take. And the same would apply, for example, with homosexuality. Um, but, you know, there, there are certain issues with respect to legislating morality. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I do think that 
um, we can have a clear voice of Seventh-day Adventists about why abortion is wrong from a biblical standpoint, and we can connect that to the everlasting gospel and the three angels' messages and, um, and not necessarily get wound up in some of the partisan politics connected to it. As we look at end-time events, we often look at the outside the church realm, the political realm, uh, what the papacy is doing, what civil liberties are being taken away, what the religious right is doing. But what are some things that we should look inwardly within the church to know that we're close to the end? Yeah, great question. You know, I say this a lot in my preaching. God's not waiting for the pope. He's not waiting for President Trump to come out and say, hey, let's do a Sunday law. All of those things could could happen, and if they do happen, we need to be paying attention to it. But God's not waiting for those things. He's He's waiting for people that he can place his seal upon. So, you know, I'm more interested in looking at the, the spiritual condition of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You know, when you look at the Seventh-day Adventist Church right now, can we look at at us as a people, as a movement, and say we're ready to receive the seal of the living God, because until God is a people who are ready to receive the seal, the four winds are going to continue to be held. Now, I'll say this, I mean, this pandemic has made me wonder, maybe we're getting closer to God having a people who are ready to be sealed. I mean, we do have to be careful about not being like Elijah, where Elijah says to God, I only am left. And God had to remind him, I have 7,000 others in Israel who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Now, you think about that, that's pretty pathetic that there were only 7,000 other people uh, among probably millions who hadn't engaged in idol worship. But, you know, you look at, at the, the current church condition, and I would say this, you know, it's easy to say, hey, look at those schools that are teaching evolution— Look at these various divisions and conferences where you never hear the three angels' messages and you just hear a social gospel that's disconnected from the power of the third angel. And, I mean, I'm not opposed to a social gospel because Christ promoted a social gospel, but I'm opposed to a social gospel that's disconnected from victory over sin and the everlasting gospel. I mean, the true gospel will be included with helping the poor and the needy. And so we don't want to disparage that in any way. But, you know, you look at all these more progressive elements of the church and you say, man, look at how bad things are. But I, I would make a high hypothesis by saying, if Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventists who believe in creation, who believe that Jesus went into the most holy place in 1844, and who believe in the three angels' messages, and they believe in the health message, and they believe in the spirit of prophecy. If enough of us were actually ready, um, I believe the Lord would move forward. And so this pandemic does make me wonder, God's sending out a trial balloon to see what's the character. And of course, God knows, but he has to, to reveal the character to us. And so we should be looking at our own hearts to say, how have I responded to this crisis? You know, it says in Christ's Logic Lessons 4, 11, 4, 12, that it's in a crisis that character is revealed. So we should be reflecting in our own hearts, 
how have I responded to this crisis? And if this did lead to the Sunday law, am I ready? Am I secretly hoping that this thing goes away because I'm not ready and I don't want a Sunday law because I know I'm not ready? If that's your attitude, you should check your standing with God and say, Lord, please help me. I need to come into a right relation with you. So that's how I look at things with the church. I mean, again, I mean, we do need to stand up and go to war against apostate elements within the church. But what about our own hearts? Are we really ready to meet that crisis? So it's what's hindering those that say have the right theology and believe the right things. What's hindering this uh, preparedness for the crisis hour. Yeah, you know, Ellen White says in that same chapter about, you know, it's it's a, the chapter on the, the ten virgins, how five are wise, five are foolish. There are people in the church right now who are ready. There always will be. There will always be people in the church who are ready. It's just that there's never been enough. And Ellen White says in that same chapter that the foolish virgins, the ones who aren't ready, she says they have not fallen upon the rock Christ Jesus and permitted the old nature to be broken up. So in other words, this crisis comes. Have you had a peace that passes understanding? Are you resting in confidence in Christ, keeping your eyes wide awake to what's happening around you, but having a confidence and a steady resolve? Or are your hearts failing for fear and are you having panic and worried that the world's about to end with a with a secret fear that you're not ready? Well, that may be because your your old nature hasn't been broken up. I mean, are you more irritable right now because the going's getting tough and so now your nerves are shot and you're more snippy with people at work or people at home or whatever it may be? You know, this is an opportunity for the fruits of the spirit to be seen in our hearts and lives. And so I believe God sent this out as a trial balloon to say, can I move forward with the final crisis or do we need to to pull back and let it go? Um, If God's people are ready, I mean, the world will start to fall apart. The four winds will be released and God's people will be sealed and we'll see a Sunday law and we'll go home. But if we're not, if there's not enough, then we'll see the pandemic go away. And there will be some new restrictions in place that will probably take away some of our civil liberties. And um, we'll adapt to a new normal, and then we'll wait till another crisis down the road to see our God's people ready. That, that's how I see it. You and I both remember September 11. Oh, yeah. And um, that actually brought a revival among youth and young adults at that time. It, it did. And... Uh, it is my hope that this would bring another revival of youth and young adults because of this. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. I mean, you know, we as Seventh-day Adventists have no excuse to not be spending time with the Lord right now. I mean, you know, everything's been taken away. I mean, there's no live sports games to be watching at night. There's, you know, no live entertainment to be going out to. You're in your home. You know, what are you doing watching movie reruns or sports reruns or what are you doing out there? I mean, we should be sp- spending time in, in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and and studying the blueprint for what is necessary to be ready for the final crisis. I mean, God has given us this opportunity. And even if the pandemic does go away and, and things kind of settle down, boy, if, if we don't 
come close to the Lord through this whole experience, if we don't experience revival and reformation through this whole experience, wow, what a wasted opportunity. Yes, indeed. What a waste. So before the ceiling, is there a special work that God's people do even through the Sunday Law crisis? Yeah. So, I mean, the loud cry, here's how I would explain the sequence for the loud cry and the sealing and the work that God's people do. So, you know, the Sabbath is the seal of God, but we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Holy Spirit does the work of sealing. And yet the Sabbath is a sign that we're sealed. So when you look at the parable of the ten virgins where it says in the midnight there was a cry made, behold, the bridegroom cometh, go, you have to meet him. Uh, the midnight cry prophetically is synonymous with a loud cry. And in the loud cry message in Revelation 18, verses 4 and 5, the loud cry message says, For sins have reached into heaven. Babylon's sins have reached into heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. And Ellen White says on Last Day Events, page 198, that Babylon's sins reach heaven at the Sunday law. So here's what I see in the parable of the ten virgins. The midnight cry is when the Sunday law is passed. When the Sunday law is passed, Every Seventh-day Adventist becomes wide awake to their eternal reality that Jesus is at the door and that he's coming. And the, the wise virgins who have the extra oil in their lamps, they receive then the outpouring of the latter rain because they had the early rain of having the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. So now they receive the outpouring of the latter rain. And when they receive the latter rain, now they are part of the loud cry experience because the midnight cry is a loud cry. And during this period of time, notice the, the foolish come to the wise and say, hey, give us of your oil, our lamps are gone out. And the wise say, go buy for yourselves. And it's during that time they give the loud cry message. And then it says, while the foolish went to buy, it says the bridegroom came and they that were ready went in with them to the marriage and the door was shut. So probation closes after the loud cry first starts. So what I believe, based on that parable, which has helped me to understand the sequence and the chronology of close of probation and the ceiling and all of that, that parable has helped me a lot, is that the midnight cry, which is the beginning of the loud cry, is when the Sunday law is passed. Then you have what would be called the, the judgment of the living. And so from the beginning of the Sunday law until the death decree, which is close of probation, you have a, a stages and escalation of the Sunday law where it just starts off as a day of worship and then you'll be fined and imprisoned if you don't worship on Sunday. And then finally you can't buy or sell and finally there's a death decree. During that whole time, that is the loud cry message and it's the little time of trouble. It's the judgment of the living. But that's the time when God's people are sealed. So when the Sunday law is passed, that's when the work of sealing takes place. And then probation closes for the whole world, including Seventh-day Adventists at the same time. However, the foolish virgins didn't have an opportunity to get the oil once the Sunday law was passed. But probation doesn't close until the death decree. So you'll have a class of Seventh-day Adventists who have their opportunity for preparation um, to be ready for Christ, their opportunity is passed and their judgment comes first. 
but probation doesn't close until the death decree. And so the way I would describe the distinction between close of probation um, and what happens to the foolish virgins is that the Sunday law is the f- your, your opportunity for being ready for Jesus to come has finished. And it's sort of like taking a test. When you walk into the room to take an examination, your opportunity to prepare for that exam is over. But your probation for the examination doesn't close until you take the examination and turn in the test. So what happens is when the Sunday law comes, that becomes a demonstration or an examination of Seventh-day Adventists to see, do you have the fruits of the Spirit, do you not? And those who have the fruits of the Spirit receive the seal of God. Those who don't won't receive the seal. And so during the little time of trouble, that's the period of examination for Seventh-day Adventists. And those who receive the seal of God give the loud cry, which causes people from Babylon to come in. Those who don't have the fruits of the Spirit, they won't give the loud cry message, and then they'll receive the mark of the beast. Um, so that's how I understand that whole process. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, so as they give the loud cry, then people from other denominations that have been sincerely seeking for God are going to join God's people. Is that correct? That's right. That's correct. Because the message has come out of for my people, that you be not partakers of your sins and that you receive not of your plague. So people in the other denominations who've lived up to all the life that they've had, they will come out during the loud cry. But Seventh-day Adventists who already had the opportunity, um, they... Um, won't have further opportunity at that point. So it'll be not only right knowledge, but a demonstration of that knowledge. That's that's exactly right. They'll have the character um, that lightens the earth with the glory of God's character. So sort of like a written test and also a lab test. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's a demonstration of, do you have the character of Christ? It's like Ellen White says, the seal of God is settling into the truth intellectually and spiritually so that you cannot be moved. So you have all the head knowledge, but you also have the heart experience. Dr. McNulty, thank you so much. Norman, thank you so much for joining us in this podcast. You're welcome. And sharing your wealth of knowledge. I know your time is valuable. You're a family man. You have a medical practice. My final question, how do we get ready for Jesus to come? Yeah, great question. You know, it's really a, a daily experience. I mean, if, if you're putting it off till tomorrow, you're not ready. Um, it's, it's a daily experience of, of having meaningful, quality devotions with God, spending time on your knees with the Lord every day, reading His Word, reading the Spirit of Prophecy, allowing the Holy Spirit to prick your conscience, um, making sure that you have fallen upon the rock Christ Jesus and allowed the old nature to be broken up so that you're a new creation, that you have a new heart. And using this opportunity, part part of the converted experience is witnessing. And so, you know, Ellen White says in Christ, object lessons, page 69, after she says the part that we usually quote, which is when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. After she says that, she says, we're all who profess his name, 
bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly would the whole world be sown with the seed of the gospel and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. And the fruit that she talks about that we need to be bearing are the fruits of the Spirit. So what I would say, how, how would you prepare for Jesus to come? Pray that the, that the Holy Spirit would give you the fruits of the Spirit, which comes from a converted heart. Pray that you would have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And, you know, the fruits of the Spirit aren't a selective buffet that you can choose which ones you want and which ones you don't. We need all of them. And so I, I would say go through the fruits of the spirit and pray that the Lord will give you true love. And the way that you know that you have love is that when you have love in your heart for people that you have a completely different perspective from, I mean, you know, if, if there's people that you couldn't imagine being their next door neighbor with in heaven, you don't have love and you're not ready for Jesus to come. You know, if you're a grumpy grouch all the time, you don't have joy. You don't have the fruits of the spirit. If you're not at peace, if you don't have patience, if you have doubt about your readiness rather than having faith, you know, those are all signs that you lack the fruits of the spirit. And, you know, well, we're not to go around and judge other people and say, I don't see the fruit of joy in their life. You should be inspecting your own heart and examining your own life to make sure that you're in the faith. And if you don't have those fruits, the Holy Spirit can reveal that to you very quickly if you pray to him and allow the, the that conviction and that conscience to prick you about what elements of the fruits of the spirit are you lacking i mean temperance is another thing a lot of seventh Adventists lack i mean we may not eat meat but we eat way too much of of what we can eat and so you know there's a lot of different things that you could you could say but that's uh, there's a lot of other things that could be said about how do we prepare for the coming of jesus but that's how, how i would answer the question for right now and that is make sure you have the fruits of the spirit because the wise virgins who are ready when the midnight cry comes and the whole church wakes up they have the extra oil which is the holy spirit which is possession of the fruits of the spirit and so those are the fruits that you want right now amen Hey, Norman, I'm going to do a follow-up question real quick about when you said yeah. that God's people sealed. I'm going to edit that uh, a little before. Uh, yeah. The question is going to be on a loud cry, okay? Is that yeah, okay? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. All right. Norman, thank you so much for joining us in this podcast. You're welcome. And sharing your wealth of knowledge. I know your time is valuable. You're a family man. You have a medical practice. So thank you for sparing us a space of time for this podcast episode. We were very blessed. It was a blessing. Thank you so much. You know, you're welcome back anytime. Sure. So in closing, can you say a closing word of prayer for us? Yeah, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that Peter and I have had this opportunity to be on this podcast together. We thank you that you are watching over each one of us and that you knew that this crisis was coming before it came and that you have given provision for each one of us to be prepared for it. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't allow this crisis to to go by without using it as an opportunity to come closer to, to you. I pray that we would spend time with you, that we would allow the fruits of the Spirit to develop in our hearts, that our characters would be transformed, and that we would be prepared for the final crisis of Earth's history whenever it may come. So, Lord, we see the birth pangs of this Earth's history before our very eyes. 
We just pray that we would be faithful, that we would be surrendered to you, that we would fall upon the rock, Christ Jesus, and permit the old nature to be broken up, and that we would be found faithful when Jesus comes. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.